Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, dedicated to advancing options and providing hope for people living with cancer. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with your host, Dr. Anise Chagpar. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about head and neck cancer with Dr. Arthi Badia. Dr. Badia is Assistant Professor of Medicine and Medical Oncology at the Yale School of Medicine, where Dr. Chagpar is a Professor of Surgical Oncology. Arthi, maybe you can start off by telling us a little bit more about head and neck cancers. It seems like there would be a lot of cancers in that bucket. Um, It is actually a pretty wide bucket. Um, You know, if you think about it, the head and neck is a pretty concise structure, but um, diagnosis, treatment follows um, like the site of origin of the tumor within the head and neck region. So broadly, it encompasses a lot of um, tumors which arise from the mucosa within the head and neck, Um, but, you know, they could arise in the mouth. So that would be oral cavity tumors. They could arise in the back of the throat. So they would be oropharyngeal tumors or tonsillar tumors. Um, They could arise in our voice box. That would be laryngeal tumors. The back of the nose is nasopharyngeal tumors. Um, You could also have salivary gland cancers. And each of those sites is treated differently in terms of how we work it up and how we manage it. And so are, are they all lumped together basically because they're all pretty rare? Um, I wouldn't say they're rare. So together, head and neck cancers always come within the top 10 most common cancers in the United States. Um, You know, there's also a much larger proportion of tumors that arise outside of the United States. So for instance, Asia has um, a very large number of new head and neck cancers that are diagnosed every year. Um, But the reason they're lumped together is because they share a common histology. So when we look at tumors under the microscope, most tumors arising from the head and neck region tend to have what we call a squamous histology. Um, and based off that, they are clubbed together as one entity. But they're different in terms of how they're treated. Um, and we're going to get into that in a second. But to take one step back, um, what is the etiology or the cause of these head and neck cancers? Why are they more common in Asia than they are, for example, in the United States? And what are some of the risk factors that people should be watching for? So the commonest etiologies worldwide is, um, you know, tobacco exposure, alcohol exposure. In Asia, there are a couple additional risk factors that increase the incidence of these cancers. So for instance, in Southeast Asia, um, you know, people tend to chew a lot of tobacco. They tend to chew betel nut. um, And those um, natural substances can also increase their risk of acquiring head and neck cancers. Um, In countries like China, um, Hong Kong, um, there is an um, incidence of nasopharyngeal cancers, which are caused by the Epstein-Barr virus or EBV virus. Um, it's almost endemic, um, you know, endemic proportions in those countries. So a lot of um, head and neck cancers tend to be nasopharyngeal. So those just increase the risk and incidence in those countries. Um, in the United States and in the Western world at large, we also see several head and neck cancers arising in association with the human papillomavirus or the HPV virus. 
Um, most commonly, people associate that with cervical cancer in women, but it's a rising incidence of HPV head and neck cancers in the Western world. And so when we think about risk factors um, for developing these cancers. And we often think about primary prevention. So how can we reduce getting these risk factors and thereby reduce our risk of getting these cancers? It seems that the two that you've mentioned um, right off the top would be um, reduce your smoking mm-hmm. um, or tobacco consumption, whether that's uh, chewing tobacco or smoking tobacco. And getting an HPV vaccine, is that right? That is right. So, um, you know, the HPV vaccine is something that still doesn't have a lot of uptake in the community. And, um, you know, it's it's good to be aware that the sooner you get it in life, um, ideally in your preteen years, um, before you have a chance of being exposed to the virus and to the infection, um, the, mu- the much better protection that the virus offers you against multiple cancers. So for women, it protects you against cervical cancer, head and neck cancer, anogenital cancers. And for men, it protects you from the head and neck cancers and the anogenital cancers. Um, so yes, and you know, another thing to be aware of is that the FDA has recently um, um, increased the age limit to which you could actually be eligible to get the vaccine. So previously it used to be about 26 years. Um, now it's up to 45 years. So, you know, people who did not meet the initial cutoff for the vaccine are now eligible to get the vaccine. And so why do you think that there is so much hesitancy about getting the HPV vaccine? I mean, it seems that it would be a, a no-brainer if uh, it can reduce your risk of getting cancer. Um you know, certainly HPV vaccines have been around for a while. Right now, during the COVID epidemic, there uh, we've seen some hesitancy with regards to vaccination for COVID based primarily off of the speed and the rapidity with which those vaccines were developed. But the HPV vaccines have been around for a while. So why aren't people getting vaccinated? Is it that this isn't really something that's been established in school programs when kids get their usual measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine? Is it a celebrity um, endorsement against vaccination? Um, Why do you think that there is this hesitancy? So I think it's a combination of factors, right? So one is the lack of awareness. Um, A lot of people do not know people who've had head and neck cancer, do not know the association with HPV, um, and, you know, are not are not thinking about the vaccine to begin with. Um, The second is that it's not a part of the national immunization schedule, unlike the MMR vaccine, which then gets offered to all pediatric patients, but this one doesn't. And the third is, um, I think, a cultural hesitancy. Um, You know, HPV is sexually acquired as an infection. Um, And I think people worry that getting teenagers a vaccine against a sexually transmitted infection will in turn then promote sexual promiscuity. Um, So I think a lot of people worry about that reason as well. And so is that why it's not part of the national vaccination schedule? I mean, it seems as though if the CDC and other public health officials um, recommend getting the HPV vaccine and it and certainly, you know, cervical cancers, head and neck cancers, anogenital cancers are significant in terms of their public health um, consequences. 
Why isn't it part of the national schedule? Well, I think one, because it's fairly new. Um, it's really only, you know, been maybe within the last decade or so that we've started to see results from clinical trials establishing the efficacy of the vaccine against these cancers. Um, and two, I think the just the cultural uptake hasn't been that much. Mm. Uh, but it would be great to see it become a part of the national immunization schedule. So, you know, people have to opt out of getting the vaccine instead of opting in to get it. And so for the people who are, are listening to this show and are thinking, you know, it seems as though this vaccine is safe, it's highly efficacious, as I understand, it can prevent over 90 percent, maybe even higher of of these cancers, uh, especially cervical cancer, but also the, the other forms of cancer. Um, why wouldn't I get it? How do they go about doing that? Is that something that they can get through their doctor's offices? Is it covered by insurance? Is there, um, what are the other potential barriers um, that people can address? It should be fairly straightforward to get it. So it is covered by insurance um, right from the preteen years. So age nine, 10 um, until someone gets to the age of 45 years. And it should be fairly straightforward to call your pediatrician or your primary care doctor and, you know, go in and get the shot. Um, most clinics offer the vaccine. And, and really, it, it's been efficacious and minimal side effects, right? Well, there are some side effects, um, nothing like the COVID vaccine. So, um, you know, right off the bat, that's something a little bit better tolerated than the COVID shot. So if people could deal with the COVID shot, they can definitely deal with the with the HPV vaccine. But there are minimal side effects. Most of them are short term. They, you know, dissipate within a day or two. Okay, great. So aside from getting the HPV vaccine, um, the other risk factors are really tobacco, which has gone down in this country, at least in terms of smoking. The other question that people may have is with regards to e-cigarettes. Um, we've found that, you know, as people's smoking in terms of smoking tobacco has gone down in the United States, e-cigarettes seem to have gone up. Does that increase your risk of head and neck cancers? There isn't a lot of data that's looked at that. You know, again, e-cigarettes are a new phenomenon. It's really only been within the past few years. Um, it theoretically would have a lower risk than regular cigarettes in causing head and neck cancers, but I'm not sure that it totally eliminates the risk altogether. And then, and then the other thing that people often put together is smoking and alcohol. Um, what's the impact of alcohol on head and neck cancers? Um, almost the same as smoking. So, you know, smoking, um, when you, when you inhale the smoke, it goes down all the way from your head and neck passages down to your lung passages with alcohol similarly goes down your mouth, your, the back of your throat, and then into the food pipe. So we do see, um, a significant proportion of patients who've never smoked, but have a significant alcohol history, who then go on to develop head and neck cancers. So I would say the risk is about the same. It's also cumulative. So the more the exposure to either substance or both substances, the higher your chance of developing a cancer. So the next question that everybody's going to ask is, is there a safe limit? So is, is one drink okay at dinner? Um, 
or is there is a, there a certain threshold um, at which people should really be cautious? So, of course, you want to avoid binge drinking, drinking. Um, and, you know, there are these thresholds that are set by the CDC as well. I think it's and maybe that needs to be double checked, but maybe it's two drinks a day for women and three drinks at a time for men. Um, the safest is to minimize, though, because I think everyone has a personal body threshold that's different. So, you know, we see some people who've smoked 100 pack years and do not get head and neck cancers. And then we see some people who've smoked just 10 years and then have a head and neck cancer that's not virus associated. So it's presumably smoking associated. So I think everyone just has a different threshold. Um, doing away with smoking altogether is healthy for everyone. And minimizing how much alcohol you drink is also the best thing you could do for yourself. And so when we move away from now primary prevention, we've kind of talked about the risk factors and things we can do to minimize that. The next thing that people often talk about is secondary prevention or screening. Um, now, unlike a lot of other cancers, breast cancer, colon cancer, um, where we really have good screening tests, do we have good screening tests for head and neck cancer? So screening hasn't shown to save lives um, for patients with who go on to develop head and neck cancer. But in our own experience, um, you know, the way head and neck cancer is most commonly diagnosed is when someone notices a lesion, say, in the oral cavity or in the back of the throat um, and is then referred to the oncology team. So that tends to be found kind of uh, serendipitously by uh, somebody's mm -hmm. doctor or dentist who looks in their mouth. Um, yes. But but I hear you that you were about to say that you organize community screening programs that might be helpful. Yes. And I'd love yes. to delve a little bit more into that. But first, we need to take a medical minute. So please stay tuned to learn more about head and neck cancers with my guest, Dr. Arthi Bhatia. Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, working to eliminate cancer as a cause of death. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a medical minute about lung cancer. More than 85% of lung cancer diagnoses are related to smoking and quitting even after decades of use can significantly reduce your risk of developing lung cancer. For lung cancer patients, clinical trials are currently underway to test innovative new treatments. Advances are being made by utilizing targeted therapies and immunotherapies. The BATTLE-2 trial aims to learn if a drug or combination of drugs based on personal biomarkers can help to control non-small cell lung cancer. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anish Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Arthi Bhatia. We're talking about head and neck cancers, and right before the break, Arthi, you made a comment that I found really interesting. You said, you know, screening for head and neck cancers has not been shown to improve survival. You know, that, that for many people, I think, would seem counterintuitive. For most cancers, we think if we pick it up early, um, the earlier we pick it up, the easier it is to treat, the better the survival rate is. So why do you think that is, that that screening really hasn't been shown to affect survival? Well, I think a large part of that is because 
patients present with symptoms pretty early on anyway. I mean, if you have a bleeding ulcer in the mouth, you have sore throat, you have trouble swallowing or chewing, you notice a neck lump, most people aren't going to sit on it for you know months or years. They're going to go see a doctor and figure out what's going on. So because of you know the location of these tumors and how early they present with symptoms most people are diagnosed early on and in early stages so the vast majority of our patients come in with curable cancers so i think there isn't much more that screening does you know screening picks up early cancers but then people come in with early cancers anyway um, so for that reason, it hasn't been shown to improve survival, but we still think it's helpful to, you know, engage in community-wide screening efforts, especially in the high-risk population. So in patients who have a significant smoking exposure, alcohol exposure, multiple sexual partners, it makes sense to have them, you know, engage with their or dentists, oral surgeons, ENTs to see if they have any lesions that can be you know, intervened on early in the course, in the disease course. Yeah, I think that's one of the the beauties of head and neck cancers is that, you know, because the lesions in the head and neck are such that they will present with symptoms, it can be found earlier than, for example, other cancers that we've talked about on this show, which tend to be pretty silent and and patients present quite late. So you mentioned a few of the symptoms that people should be looking out for, right? Um, A bleeding ulcer, nosebleeds, a lump in the throat, losing your voice, hoarseness, cough. Are there other things that people should be looking out for and uh, seeing their doctor about? Um, You know, sometimes you may even have oral lesions, which tend not to bleed, but they've just been there for a while. Um, Some of those can be precancerous. You know, some precancerous lesions will then go on to transform into cancer. So even if it isn't a very bothersome lesion, but just has been there around for a while, you want to make sure you see someone about it um, and get it checked out. Yeah. And, and, you know, for many people, um, you know, going to your doctor for a regular checkup once a year or seeing your dentist once or twice a year is a really good thing to do because, as you mentioned, it's often on these these visits that um, people can pick up on lesions that may not have been bothersome to you uh, that then present with a lesion that they can they can then see as suspicious and, and move on to the next step. So when you do go to your dentist or your doctor and they say, say, ah, and they find something, what's the next step in terms of making a diagnosis and and moving on with treatment? So they will, if the dentist finds something that's suspicious, they will either refer you to an oral surgeon or an ENT. um, And both those kind of physicians can make a diagnosis with a biopsy. So we need to typically get some of that tissue out with a needle, look at it under the microscope and see what's going on. And if that diagnoses um, a cancer, you know, the next step is usually scans where we try to find out to what extent has this cancer spread? Is it involving adjacent structures? Is it involving some neck nodes? Um, Is it a local tumor or has it spread? Um, And then, you know, from then on, you get involved with the rest of the oncology team. So you meet a radiation oncologist, you meet a medical oncologist, which is someone like me. um, And usually treatment will then 
be planned involving a course of, you know, say radiation or chemotherapy or surgery or a combination of these. So multidisciplinary management is key to treating and formulating a good treatment plan for head and neck cancer patients. Um, and in fact, outcomes are tied to being treated at large volume centers. So you want to make sure you see someone who, um, you know, has many head and neck cancer patients and has dealt with their treatment. Yeah, for sure. And, and, and so, you know, when you talk about large volume centers, I think part of that may have to do with the expertise of the clinicians themselves and the fact that they they see these cancers day in and day out. But but the other might be some of the things that they have at large volume centers that may not be ubiquitously available. So um, talk to us a little bit about um, personalized medicine. Uh, we find that in so many cancers now, especially the large volume centers, really are tailoring care in terms of the genomics of a particular cancer and using that information, that molecular information to really tailor their therapy uh, in terms of that multimodality care that you were talking about. Can you talk more about that? Yes, absolutely. So, um, you know, that's valid for patients who have um, more advanced disease or incurable disease. Um, at our center, and I'm sure at many other, other large volume centers with expertise, we do what we call molecular sequencing or profiling of tumors. So the biopsies are analyzed for, their, for genes that are present in the tumor. Um, and, you know, we then determine, is this gene something that was inherited by the patient or is it something that arose de novo in the oral cavity or in the mucosa of the head and neck um, and then went on to cause a tumor? And sometimes knowing what these um, genetic defects or mutations are in the tumor um, help us identify drugs or you know, targeted therapies, which then will um, specifically go and target or inhibit that aberrant protein or aberrant mutation um, so the cancer can come under better control. Some of these drugs are FDA approved in these settings, and some of these drugs are available on clinical trials. Um, and clearly, more clinical trials will be available at the larger volume centers where, you know, we have the patients to offer these studies to. Um, but even for patients who have curable disease, you know, like we mentioned, head and neck cancers tend to present most often in the curative stage. Um, you know, um, therapeutic modalities like robotic surgeries, um, advanced radiation techniques are sometimes available only at the large volume centers. Um, and even if it you know, along with improving your prognosis or outcomes for treating these cancers, it also helps minimize the side effects that you have and you have to then live with for the rest of your life as a result of undergoing cancer treatment. So there are many advantages to being seen at large volume centers. So one of the things, Arthi, that you mentioned, which um, many people might find curious is that, you know, when you talk about genomics and and kind of tailored therapy, that that's mainly for people who present with advanced cancers. So is it the case that in more early stage cancers, the systemic therapy or the chemotherapies tend to be uniform across patients? Um, that is probably true for head and neck cancers. Um, you know, that might change in the future, though. So, um, 
for instance, immunotherapy is currently approved only in the treatment of advanced cancers, but we now have many trials which are looking to um, move immunotherapy into the curative setting and see if we can improve cure chances for our patients with locally advanced disease. So there are biomarkers which we use to predict for which patients will respond to immunotherapy in the advanced setting. And that might become standard of care for even patients who are in the locally advanced setting. So where we're using chemo and standard radiation for cure, but we're maybe adding on a partner drug like an immunotherapy drug um, based on what trials show us in the next few years, there is a chance that we may not be using that for everyone, but personalizing it for patients um, who have these positive biomarkers, which then predicts for a better outcome with immunotherapy. And so what in general is the prognosis for patients who present with early stage head and neck cancers? So a large part of that depends on whether or not they're associated with HPV. So having the HPV virus-associated cancer confers a much better prognosis. Um, and in the early stage, 80 to 90% of these patients can be cured five years out. Um, in patients who have HPV-negative disease, that number is a little bit lower. But if you compare with a lot of other cancer types, it's still pretty good. Um, you know, we are able to cure about, on average, 60% of HPV-negative patients um, early stage with curative intent treatment. Of course, we are always trying to do research and clinical trials to see if we can move that bar up and, you know, get a higher proportion of our patients cured. Um, and that's also the advantage of being seen at, you know, larger centers, which have these trials to maybe make treatment more aggressive, to intensify your treatment so we can move that bar up for our, for our patients. Yeah, that was going to be one of my questions, which is, you know, for many patients, they hear about clinical trials and they think, you know, I have a fairly early stage cancer, um, prognosis is reasonably good, um, Clinical trials always sound a little scary. Uh, do I really want to be a guinea pig in the early stage? So what do you say to patients who might be contemplating whether they really ought to be in a clinical trial um, if they have potentially curative cancer um, or or not? Right. So, you know, two things. One, it's always good to remember that what is standard treatment today was a clinical trial some years ago. So we would have not gotten to the treatments that we are at today if we had not, you know, used some other patients in the past on clinical trials. The second thing is that we always try to carefully match and screen patients to the available trials that we have. So we're always also, you know, thinking about what benefit does it directly offer that patient um, and even if there is a chance of some benefit, you know, then that's the ideal patient to be matched to a clinical trial. So, of course, if we think that there is no possible benefit to someone, we're not going to put them on a trial. So we're ethically and carefully screening patients. Um, it's also a mutual decision. So it's not something that's going to be forced on anyone. Um, but it's worth at least hearing out your options and then making an informed choice. Yeah. And I think it's so important for people to realize that, you know, on average, patients who participate in clinical trials tend to do better than patients who don't. 
um, because we're always testing what we think is tomorrow's therapy, the next great therapy, how we can move that bar, as you said, to standard of care today. And, And so on average, people tend to do better. The other question that I want to circle back to before the show closes is an important one. And that is, you mentioned that people who have HPV positive cancers tend to do better than people who have HPV negative cancers. And I want you to kind of dispel a misconception that some people might have then, which is, why should I get the HPV vaccine if that then would prevent me from getting an HPV positive cancer? So then I would be more likely to get an HPV negative cancer and do worse. So getting the vaccine does not increase your risk, A, of getting the HPV negative cancer, Um, And B, HPV positive cancers actually tend to occur earlier in life. So, you know, where HPV negative cancers need a certain degree of tobacco and alcohol exposure for them to develop um, and usually occur in the sixth or seventh decade of life, HPV positive cancers can occur as early as the third, fourth, fifth decades of life. And think about it now, you have a highly curable cancer, but the, the treatment is just as aggressive as HPV negative cancers by the current standard of care. So you're going to live out all these decades dealing with the side effects of treatment. Um, And for anyone who's known someone going through head and neck cancer treatment or has gone through it themselves, it's probably, you know, a nightmare to live through and something that stays with you for the rest of your life. The side effects can be pretty disabling for many, many years afterwards. Dr. Arthi Badia is Assistant Professor of Medicine and Medical Oncology at the Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.